So we are going to continue our series on hope. Uh, how do we live inside hope? Uh, it's interesting. I am. I'm. Uh, I don't talk about this a lot. I hope I don't. But I'm doing a program at Oxford. It's real fancy. Anyway, uh, one of the things about this program is around preparing people to do public debates and to give lectures and things like that on faith and how to interact with the academic world and things like that. One of the fascinating things about it, though, is the real debates around, is God real? Is he something I can hope in? Those debates really don't happen in old monastic sort of structures in Europe or in fancy halls at university. The real debates, I mean, they're intellectual, they're really lovely, they're fun, but the real ones happen in hospital rooms that are being turned into morgues in front of our eyes. Uh, the real debates uh, rage inside of us when the world outside looks like nothing we want to know, right? When, when we're watching the news, when we're living through life, and we're like, we don't like this world that we know, that's when the real internal anguish begins. You know, our confidence in the kingdom of God is actually waning when it seems like the kingdoms of this world are spiraling towards the self-destruction of this world, right? And it seems like, is God's kingdom doing anything to resist that kind of catastrophic thing? Uh, we, we wrestle with Jesus when he appears to be absent. That's the, the real debates happen then. Uh, or worse, when it appears as though Jesus is apathetic, uh, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Elijah. Uh, he's a prophet, and he's confronting these pagan prophets of a different god named Baal. And what's happened is Baal, like the people all believe in him, they're, they're worshiping him, they're doing all this, like it's a huge group, there's hundreds of prophets to Baal, there's one prophet for Elijah, and what they do, and I love this about the Bible, is they have this sort of public showdown it's really amazing where uh, Elijah says, let's meet out in the parking lot, essentially. Let's go meet up on this hill and this mountain and you bring stuff to make a sacrifice. You call out to your God. I'll make a sacrifice. I'll call out to my God. The God who responds is the true God. And so Elijah's like, hey, you guys go first. And they're out there and they're screaming and they've built this sacrifice and it's this wonderful test. But the, the God, Baal, isn't doing anything with their sacrifice. And so Elijah begins to taunt them. He says, maybe your God's on vacation. Uh, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's far, far away and you should shout louder. And the prophets respond. They like start beating themselves. It's pretty, pretty gruesome. Elijah taunts them more. Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's tired. Maybe that's why. Maybe your God is deep in thought. And he, he needs to be jolted out of his deep thoughts to come and move. They shouted, they shouted and shouted, and Baal was silent the whole time. And the story ends, though, with them quitting and Elijah crying out to God once, and God, Yahweh, responding emphatically with this pillar of fire and completely consuming his very wet, uh, completely uh, his sacrifice. And immediately everyone's like, this is a great victory for God, Yahweh, and clearly he's God, and Baal is clearly not God, right? You guys know that story. It's a wonderful story. But doesn't, to me at least, the experience of the believers of Baal 
actually resonates more with me than the experience of Elijah. There are times so much in my life when I'm there and I'm praying and I'm seeking and I want things to be different and I'm like, maybe Jesus is asleep. Uh, maybe he's distracted by someone else somewhere else. Maybe, maybe Jesus is in deep thought. Maybe I don't matter. Maybe he doesn't matter. Where is he? I think that's actually a common experience in the Christian life. We pray, we plead, doesn't God say anything? Maybe he can't, maybe he doesn't want to. This, you know, my friends, is real doubt. This is the real stuff of doubt. Do you know that kind of doubt? Here's what's weird, though, about those experiences. There's something about us where we just can't stop looking toward Jesus. It's frustrating. There's times where uh, there's just something about him that doesn't allow us to completely just abandon ship and walk away. Sometimes we leave religion, we leave church, uh, yet there's these silent yearnings that we have of this voice, this image, this idea of the kingdom of God that we just can't quit that we just can't get over. Uh, even our society can't quit and get over. Our society still longs for a tolerant, peaceful, loving, gracious society. Like we can't let go of the dream of the kingdom of God. And there's every, all these moments where sometimes we catch a glimpse of Jesus's hope or we uh, experience something that takes us to a familiar sense of peace. You know, like when you smell something that reminds you of your grandmother's home. And so sometimes we get back into church, we move about life, we try new things, we begin to believe again. We also, though, continue to not believe things. We're filled with both faith and we're filled with doubt, right? I've been a pastor for 15 years. Basically, all I've done is pastor people who don't believe. It's been fun. Uh, it's been actually quite fun and quite awesome. You know, I've sat with people, some of you, in fact, maybe, often I even sit with myself, and these are the questions that we face. You know, how deeply must I believe in Jesus? How, how much belief do I really need? How confident must I be? Is it all or nothing? Am I a fraud? Am I a fraud because I believe and I don't believe? Surely, you know, the doubts that come up in me just expose the whole thing is fraudulent. These are the questions I've been able to process with you and others. I want to engage those questions by looking today at this central story in the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's central, I mean literally. It's in the very middle of the Gospel of Mark. If you cut it in half, it's right there in the middle. About a father who believes and doesn't believe, who doesn't even follow Jesus, He's not one of the disciples who's like right there. Uh, and I want to engage in that story. Oh, no. No, you're fine. And then next week, we'll actually talk about the same story again, but through the eyes of the disciples. And it's from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And this is what it says. It says, And when they came to the other disciples, that's Jesus and uh, Peter and John er, and James, they've all been up with Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week. But they've all been up there. And when they come back, they see a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law are arguing with them. 
As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out this spirit, but they could not. Ah, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replies. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered, it has often thrown him into fire and to water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, it convulsed him violently and it came out and the book and the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up and Jesus had gone and when after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is God's word. So this is a story about a father who has in front of him this lifelong demonstration of the brokenness of the world. You know, uh, he has a child where time has refused to heal him. Uh, medicine has fallen short, therapies, uh, even his own vigilance, right? He's watching his son and all the time, he's trying to care, him, care for him all the time, and none of that, it seems, could prevent his son from nearly dying through burning and through drowning. You know, he likely was awake in the nights just staring at his son in terror uh, at the next day or the next hour, what's gonna happen to his precious child? Uh, He correctly describes his son's state as evil, like beyond the world's knowledge and intention, like this should not be, is basically what the father is saying. What's happening with my son is not okay, and it is, I mean, he's going to all the, the links to do something for his son. The father knows this is not how his, his son's life is supposed to be. He wasn't made for this kind of torture. And I think that this is the kind of agony uh, when you're certain that something is broken and you have no ability to do anything about it. I think that's real anguish. Uh, often I think the greatest challenges of doubt arrive to us, not from our own suffering, not from the things happening to us, but the indirect pain of people that we love. So the the great challenges of doubt arrive to us not from our own pain, like, ah, I'm really suffering, but actually the people that we love and we're watching them and they're suffering and we think, what is God doing? What can happen 
Like, how did this happen? The, the friend's addiction, the mentor battling cancer, you know, the internal demons of somebody that you love repeatedly stealing life from them over and over again. Uh, in Shusaku Endo's novel, Silence, uh, he tells the story, there's also a Martin Scorsese movie about it, it's great, uh, but the novel's brilliant. Uh, what's happening is there's a priest who's being psychologically tortured. Uh, but next to him, he can see uh, other people, other Christians being physically tortured. And the anguish is for the priest, the psychological torture for him is watching other people in pain and suffering. Eventually, the priest says this about what's happening. He says, I did pray, I kept on praying, but prayer did nothing to alleviate their suffering. Why, Lord, why are you silent? Why are you always silent? And that's where the title of the novel comes from. Where, where his pain and his frustration, his doubt is not with what's happening to him, but what he's seeing being done to others. And it appears as though God is doing nothing. Where it feels like nothing you do can help, nothing you hope for can come through. That is quiet internal chaos. And so you might resign yourself to this phrase that the father has, I believe something could change if God's compassionate or has pity or, or mercy, but I also don't believe. Uh, that's, how, that's how we land there. I believe, like this priest, I'm praying and praying, but also he doesn't believe. So I wonder, do we suffer from some sort of cognitive multiple belief disorder? I made that up. A cognitive multiple belief disorder that we ourselves are thinking and we believe multiple different things, is it some kind of disorder within us? Shouldn't we land on one side or the other, right? Uh, wh like, why doesn't this father just say, I do believe? I mean, clearly that's what Jesus is fishing for. Why doesn't he just go, I believe, right? But, but he's being honest. He's like, I believe and I also, I don't believe. If this father, you know, didn't believe, he wouldn't have asked Jesus for any help. If he had zero belief, he wouldn't have asked for any help. But also if this man did believe, he wouldn't have said, if you can, if you have compassion. It's both. And I think what's interesting is we live in kind of this moment of binary faith or facts moment. You either believe or you don't. It's like a light switch. It's binary. Uh, how did we land in this awkward place, though? of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. It feels fraudulent, right? Essentially, humanity uh, is sitting in this moment of relationship with God who's imminent, and we struggle to believe that, oh, is Jesus that close to me? And that's a lot of what we struggle with. We believe, oh, God's out there. He created the universe. That's really wonderful. How can he be close? Others of us, though, live in this uh, situation where we're like, oh, I, I believe God is close. He's, he's with me. He's my friend, but he's uninvolved in the big and the cosmic. He's not transcendent. Uh, the, the kind of background of this belief versus facts thing is the enlightenment. Y'all want to take a journey into the enlightenment? It's fun. It happened 500 years ago. But we live in this post-enlightenment culture that basically rejects a dilemma of someone saying, I believe and I don't believe. 
So that's the whole culture that you've grown up with, that you've lived in has said, no, there's, there is no dilemma. There's facts and there's feelings. There's faith and then there's knowledge and the two are completely different. Uh, in the Enlightenment, they separated. It's actually fascinating, even in the main um, you know, uh, uni- medieval universities, religion and science used to be like the same department and then got split up through this process. Uh, in that period, they divided things between things that we know from things that we believe. And that said that there's, there, there's not some sort of interwoven reality of, of belief and knowing. Philosopher John Locke famously divine, defines belief for us. Uh, this, is the, this is your definition of belief, whether you know it or not. He says, belief is this persuasion which falls short of knowledge. Belief is a persuasion that falls short of knowledge. And what he's saying is there's all these things that we can know empirically that we've studied and we've put them through the, the whole process of coming to know these are facts, they end, and everything that comes after that is belief. Facts amount to knowledge. Belief amounts to religion. Facts are rivaled by fiction. Uh, Belief is where, you know, fictions, things that cannot be proven, just kind of find some sort of internal or relative value. So if John Locke is saying, there's all this stuff that we know, and then after that, it's just belief, the, the implication is you need to figure out what beliefs you put in that after the road ends. And you can put whatever beliefs you want to as long as it's significant to you, uh, and it, it can be relative to other people. Those are the separations. Uh, If you grow in knowledge based on facts, hopefully you can eliminate the gaps because belief is just there to fill the gaps. Uh, They also, during this time, uh, Descartes, the French philosopher, really great, he shaped us really intensely in this arena. He basically said that doubt has to be applied to all beliefs, that the only way to know things is to doubt them. Uh, however ancient they are, however important they seem to be to us, we should doubt everything. We should have all of this skepticism and so that through that process, we might remove doubt and only the things that can, where doubt can be removed completely can be accepted. Only things where there is no doubt can you accept anything. If a claim cannot sustain doubt, then it can't be held up. So if, if you can't question it and put it through this uh, internal process of discovery, if at the end you can't remove all doubt, then, you know, it's not worth believing. It's just flight of fancy. But for Jesus, he talks about knowledge running through belief, not the other way around. Uh, one of the foundations of our justice system is this, and I'm glad all the lawyers are gone today. It's... I was, I, was, I was like, what would Annalise say? Anyway, I've actually talked to her about this. I'm pretty confident. One of the foundations of our justice system is this, this conviction that a jury cannot sentence someone unless they're certain of their guilt. Uh, our phrase for this, if you've watched any court drama ever, is they have to know beyond a shadow of doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt. Meaning, theoretically, we don't send someone to jail unless 
uh, there is no amount of doubt that we have that they're innocent. If there's any, if there's a 5% chance within that jury that we think, ah, maybe he's innocent. This is how our system works. If there's a 5% feeling or understanding, then, then we can't convict that person, right? Y'all have seen Law and Order? Awesome. So the, the lawyer's job then uh, the prosecutor, their job is to pre- keep providing evidence after evidence, witness after witness, until the jury has zero doubt. The burden of proof that this person is guilty rests on the lawyers to remove all doubt. And when the evidence becomes overwhelming, then the jury is ready to offer a verdict, right? Uh, in this mindset, it's pretty fascinating. If there is doubt, and if they do come away, the jury says, actually, we have five, 10% doubt, then they they remove the claim entirely. And they send the person out as if they're completely innocent. Like, there's no like little asterisk next to that person that says, well, there was 90% certainty, 10% doubt that they killed the person, right? Like OJ. There's no, I mean, we all have an asterisk because it was televised forever, but there's no like asterisk next to that. In the court of law, there's no conviction. It is, you are innocent. Like you are not guilty is what gets professed over those persons. So essentially uh, the claim, if there's any doubt at all, it's, it's labeled 100% false. Doubt, not faith we kind of understand is the path to knowledge. But does that actually work in like the stuff that makes life good and meaningful? Does that actually satisfy? Um, What works to me, it seems like in in a criminal child is this really great safeguard about sending wrongfully accused people to prison uh, that seems great. Like, I'm, I'm in favor. I don't think we should change the court system. Matt gave me a thumbs up. But I wonder, does that work with beauty and goodness? Does it work with uh, grace and forgiveness? Does it work with love? Because these are the innermost parts of a, of a person's life, and I'm not sure that those things, like does this person love me, can be verified through some extinguishing of doubt process that Descartes dreams about. You know, like that's why he was kind of tired and lonely at the end of his life. Like, can you really go about this whole process of engaging every single thing, like the real stuff of life through this courtroom drama of there has to be zero doubt and then I know that, that I can say I, I do on a wedding day. I, actually, I think there's not a single person that stands there on their wedding day and looks at the other person and says, I do, with the same kind of conviction that a jury has about putting someone in jail because there's, all, there's no way to put it through that. Uh, one of my favorite uh, novelists is John Steinbeck, and I attempt not to quote him too much, but the best picture of this is through his character, Lenny Small and Of Mice and Men. And Lenny Small is a big man, like huge, massive person. Uh, with some different uh, mental handicaps and things like that. But what he does is he continually finds little mice, little cute mice, and they're his pets, and he plays with them, and he, he loves the mice, but then he loves it so much that he crushes it in his hand 
over and over again. And then it ends dramatically with not a mouse, but with something else. And so you have to read. It's really short. It's really wonderful. But what he does is he, he caresses this thing until he crushes it entirely. In an attempt to engage it, he kills it. And this is what I just want to say. I think a hope that we put on trial stops being a hope for you. Uh, because it can only be this element in the past that we analyze, you know, cause and effects. Hope is this future longing. Can you verify a future longing through the Cartesian process of doubt? You can't. Love can't be cross-examined. It kills it. Can you imagine every day putting your spouse on a witness stand, cross-examining them, asking for evidence and evidence and evidence and say, okay, I guess you do love me. It would crush it, right? Goodness, beauty, wholeness, those are the stuff that makes life worthy. You can absolutely doubt it, but you can still take hold of it and shape your entire life around it. You can shape your entire life around, I think film and the stories it tells are really good and wonderful. I think every director though doubts that the story they're putting together is actually a good one. You can uh, commit your entire life to creating beauty and wholeness in this world and still at moments doubt whether it will or not. You can look to the horizon, you can search for a future, and you can wonder, will that future actually come? You can look your lover in the eye and have questions if they have the resolve to love you back. I'd actually say that doubt in those arenas of belief actually intensifies hope and intensifies longing in the future. Uh, English theologian Leslie Newbigin, he's really great, uh, taught us that we should employ both faith and doubt. He wrote a book called Proper Confidence. It's really great. It's really nerdy. So have a way, all you nerds. But he says this. He says, both faith and doubt are necessary elements in this adventure. One does not learn anything except by believing something. And conversely, if one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is a road to disaster. The faculty of doubt is essential. And this is what uh, essentially I think Jesus is saying even in these moments. Do you believe? Uh, do you believe? With me, anything is possible if you believe. What he's describing is belief comes first. And you can doubt all the way afterwards. Jesus isn't looking for blind faith. He's actually, he's looking for little faith, belief and unbelief. Uh, the Greek word for doubt used in the gospels just means an absence of full confidence or full reliance or trust. That's the word doubt, uh, which is like our legal system. Like it's the same kind of sense. In the gospel of Matthew, Peter famously walks on water. Uh, Jesus is walking to them. He gets out of the boat because he sees Jesus. He loves Jesus. He thinks Jesus is awesome. And if Jesus can do it, so can I. Incredible. He gets out of the boat, almost like this childlike moment of faith. And he gets out and he's standing and walking on water. I mean, we all have all these jokes in our culture about Jesus walking on water, but like Peter did too. 
I mean, I think we should give Peter a little bit more credit. Like, he's also, Jesus walked on water, so two people. He's not special. He's not like LeBron. LeBron is the only one that scored 40,000 points. That, that's just my little nugget. But what happens is Peter is there, and he's looking at Jesus, and then suddenly he loses full confidence. He loses his confidence, his reliance. He begins to question. He falters. He begins to sink. Matthew says Peter doubted. That Greek word for doubted. He loved Jesus. He trusted Jesus. He walked uh, on the sea of Galilee towards Jesus. But mixed alongside of that was he didn't trust Jesus. He wasn't sure of his love. He wasn't confident in his walking on water. And Matthew tells us the truth also about it. He says Peter was afraid. Finding himself out there, literally, not on a limb, figuratively, on a limb, on the water, his physical, his emotional capacity, his understanding of how the world works, he reached the end of it and he begins to sink and he cries out because he's afraid, he says, Jesus, save me. Like that's, the story ends with Peter crying out in fear, in horror, like he was trusting and like walking on the water. Now he's terrified, crying out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus pulls him out of the water. In that moment of agony, I guess he did trust. He did believe, even though his lack of belief is why he was sinking. We want to have a lot of everything, I think. Uh, There's not very many things that we don't want to have a lot of. Maybe fat is one. We don't want to have a lot of fat. We don't want to have a lot of stress. But all the good stuff, we want to have a lot of it. But Jesus says we only need a little bit of one thing, faith. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which some of us think it must be microscopic. I mean, it's like a mustard seed. You have ground mustard now. Not tiny, but not huge. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move the mountains. You can say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Which is, I think, a phenomenal statement because there's been many saints of faith through the history. I mean, there's been people who have died at the stake. They've been martyred. They've crossed oceans to proclaim the gospel. There's been many, many people of faith. And I've never heard a story of someone saying to the mountains, move from there to over there, and it happens. Have you? No. So I think what Jesus... I mean, these people of great faith to us must still have smaller faith than a mustard seed, right? That's my analytical, logical thinking. But Jesus is saying, if you have just a little, all he is looking for is a little bit of faith, not a doubt-quenching faith, just a little bit of faith. Why would he say that? What can we learn from Jesus's proclamation of all I really need is a little bit of faith? I think, couldn't it be for for Jesus talking to this father and Jesus talking to us and Jesus explaining this faith with the mustard seed, couldn't it be that Jesus isn't looking for buttoned up, tightly packaged, unwavering conviction, but instead he is completely confident that he is the perfect unwavering conviction for us? Could it be that he's not looking for perfect 
extraordinary faith from us because he is confident he is providing it all for us. Could it be that he's not only asking us to trust him, but he's also asking us to let him trust for us? I don't think that Jesus was, his deciphering whether he should heal or save this boy was hinging on the father's answer. I don't think that that's what was about to happen. I know it's, ah, this father better give a good idea. He better give a good answer. I hope he's read his philosophy. No, Jesus doesn't say, oh, you've answered well or oh, you've answered poorly. His next words, Jesus's next words are, you deaf, mute spirit come out and never go back again. While we're trying to explore and we're measuring all of the truth claims about Jesus and we're analyzing historical data and we're trying to understand the existence of God with our friends, God is unmoved. His, he is an unmovable mountain. Like he, he's not wavering or confused. Jesus isn't in an ivory tower wondering, do I really exist? Do I really love this world? While we sink and flail on the sea, he's eagerly walking towards us, responding to our anxious cry, Lord, save me. That's what's so phenomenal about the story. Peter is sinking. Side note, if you're gonna be a fisherman, you should learn how to swim. But he is sinking. And Jesus doesn't tell him, I can't believe you stopped having faith. Can't believe you didn't learn how to swim. I can't believe you didn't understand that only I can walk on water. Instead, he is right there to pull him out of the water. While we hold our children and we ask questions uh, about the existence of God, Jesus is asking questions to us that draw out our heart. Some of the kindness of Jesus is saying, if, if I can to this father, and then the statement, anything's possible for those who believe. And then he gives this answer of, I believe, but I don't believe. And Jesus says, I think implied, that's enough. Because the next thing he does is he heals the child. So my question is, do you have enough, just a little bit of faith to cry out for salvation in a bleak world? Jesus, save me. Do you have enough? Not a binary quick on or off switch, but do you have enough? Because that's the kind of belief that moves through doubt instead of belief that starts with doubt. A quick little warning about doubt. It's a little aside, but I've had a soapbox. I would stand on it. Sometimes doubt can operate as a false protector. Our culture loves doubt. If you look at some of the top Christian books that are being sold right now, if you get past the like, God can make you good, sexy, and healthy, and you get to the other books, they're all about doubt, because we love doubt. Sometimes doubt can be a false protector. You know, you, we can say things like, I'm not sure I believe that, and it keeps us in control. It creates a distance between us and something that might reveal us to be foolish. We're tired of being foolish. Why would I wanna believe something and then in the end look stupid, right? Uh, it's like whenever I'm talking to 
some of my friends who actually watch all of the movies and they're making debates, I get really quiet because I don't want to say, well, I've seen one movie nominated for an Oscar and I think it's the best, <laughs> right? I don't want to be that joker, so I just let Ian and Michael talk. <laughs> so we don't want to look foolish. We want to say, I'm not sure what I believe about that. We think that if we maintain some sort of passive doubt of uncertainty, we don't have to put ourselves underneath the rule or the reign of Jesus or anything like that. And we can have this autonomy uh, because we've, we've refused to proclaim anything certain. We, we get to have our doubt and we get to keep having it unprocessed. We can be like, I still doubt about that. We just keep moving on. It allows us to continue to think that we're in control. But here's the, like Jesus is still in control of the boy. The father's not in control of the boy. That's where the anguish comes from. The father's watching the son all the time, hoping that he doesn't die. The father's been watching the son since the formations of the universe. Passive doubt doesn't put you in control. Uh, also, the other warning is often doubt shields us from being let down. You know, I don't believe God heals. That really helps you from being disappointed when he doesn't heal. So you can say, I don't believe he heals. I don't believe he speaks. I don't think he's involved. And it's just protection. But in this story, the father turns to Jesus with a mixture of doubt and faith, and he asks for help. Perhaps belief humbly draws us to this awareness that we cannot do anything to save ourselves or to save others. And so, in belief, we cry out to Jesus, could you save? If you have any compassion, could you help us? And this is a cry that's echoed through history. Uh, when uh, God first comes to Moses uh, in the burning bush situation, God says to Moses, I have heard the cries for freedom. Like the generation of generation crying out for freedom, for rescue. This is the stuff of belief. Living uh, like a child, employing all of our doubt, all of our belief by placing ourselves at the mercy of a great claim. I think this is perhaps hope. Can you believe in this way? Just a little bit of faith. Can you believe in this way with your future that you have no control over? But can you believe in the way that says, Jesus, please save can you believe in this way with your career, with this world, with your soul, with your health, with this church, with elections, with your relationships? Most importantly, can you believe this way for your own salvation towards a living hope in Christ? Those are the, those are the real questions. Not are you a fraud because you have doubt, but can you believe enough can you believe out of that guttural cry of your heart, please save me, I'm not in control. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe. Please help us overcome our unbelief. God, I pray that we would understand and know uh, 
with, uh, with great conviction, as much conviction as we can muster, the goodness that you are. I pray that we can uh, walk this great adventure, as Leslie Newbigin says, uh, towards belief, belief that becomes knowledge, knowledge that becomes hope. Uh, please, Lord, help us, help us walk through this life, help us walk through this anguish. We want to, to look towards you. We want to cry out to you in our wavering, in our confidence. Keep us as people humble, uh, reliant on you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.